I'm Brendan Kearney, and you're listening to the Belgian Smack Podcast, where we explore the world of Belgian beer. On the 6th of January 2015, Jeff Janssens awoke on his family farm to the sound of rubble falling from the adjacent building. The fire brigade arrived soon after to put out a fire that had broken out. The roof of their brewery, the entire bottling line, the conditioning rooms and most of the stock were all burnt to the ground. For the Janssens family who owned the Hoftendormal farmhouse brewery, it was a financial disaster. The family is made up of parents, André and Mole, as well as Jeff's brother Dries and their sister Lisa. But there's always a lot more people than that on the Hoftendormal farm. It's a kind of open house where visitors, of which there are many, always receive a warm welcome and a glass of beer. The immediate aftermath of the fire was a difficult time which Jeff speaks here openly about when the quality of their beer suffered because of the difficult working conditions and lack of money. Through hard work, the establishment of a new festival themed on innovation in beer and their contacts in the beer community, they managed to get themselves back on their feet and they've just undergone a brewery expansion. Jeff, as lead brewer now, is not only obsessed with tanks, he's also obsessed with tanks, as in armoured fighting vehicles, especially their diverse engineering and historical significance. He even has a tattoo of an armoured tank on his chest. In our chat, we discuss the origin story of this farmhouse brewery, a two-week visit of his father to Butte, Montana, and Jeff's thoughts on Hoftendormal's place in the Belgian beer world. We talk about the fire and the challenges the family faced in its aftermath, both financial and emotional. And we hear Jeff's personal feelings on the future of Belgian beer. Sit back, listen, and enjoy Jeff Janssens of Brauerei Hoftendormal. Jeff Janssens. Yes. Good afternoon. Hey, Brandon. Thanks for speaking to me. You're from a farmhouse brewery in uh, Vlaams Brabant. Yes. Uh, a village of Tildunk called Hoftendormal. So what does Hoftendormal mean, first of all? So the name actually comes from... So we're in an historic farmhouse. Uh, and the first owner of the farm was called Jan van Dormaal. The first one who was written down, at least, 1150s. So that's why we chose the name Hoftendormal. We didn't want to have, like, brewery, the farm. And, and like, Hof is a word that... Hof is, means, like, the area of the farm, basically. Okay. So um, how long have you guys been around, or how long have you guys been brewing? So we, we started up in March 2009, so nine years now. And how did it come about? Yeah, we, we have the weirdest background story ever. Like, most people start up out of a, a home brewing uh, idea or a big passion for beer. And we basically started up because we bought a farm. We're not originally from the farm. We're from Fletch next door. My parents bought a farm as, like, a place to calm down. Father was an accountant. And my brother always wanted to be a farmer. Like, 
So, so you, your your um, dad is Andre. Yep. And your mum is Mol. Mol. And your brother is on Dries. Dries. And then you have a sister, Lisa. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that's the, the. So Dries wanted to be a farmer. Yeah. But your father was an accountant. Was an accountant, just in another village. And so he wanted to be a farmer, but we bought the farm. So you only buy a small amount of land because farming in Belgium or anywhere in Western Europe, you're pretty fucked if you want to start farming. Why? Uh, because crop prices are so low and land prices are so high. Uh, so it was was it it wasn't a, a an economic decision to start farming. It was more of a lifestyle. Yeah, change. it's a lifestyle lifestyle decision of my brother. And then my father, my brother started thinking. Back then, I was just I was like seventeen or something, like not involved at all. So they started thinking, and then oh, we can do cheese, we can do ice cream, or something something extremely boring, which doesn't really add value to a company. So, so, so your dad was kind of stressed at work? Yeah. So he went on a... And th- this was in the accountancy job, so it was yeah. kind of um, like a... Um, yeah. It was like you thought in Engels. He needed like a, re- a period of recuperation. Yeah. The recuperation. So he went to the States. So he was just fed up with the accountancy and yeah, wanted something Yeah, just fed different. up with the accountancy. And were you, were you guys kind of aware of like what he was going through at the time or were you worried at all? No, 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 no. It it wasn't like, it's not that he was like depressed or whatever. He just, he knew he was fed up. Like a burnout type thing. Not even, not even, but like in search of something new. Okay. But not with like grave illness or, so we went to the States and he came back, guys, I I bought a brewery. And he told you this when he had already bought it? Yeah. So we, we bought a 15 hectare brewing system. And do you guys have any experience in brewing? No, none at all. And, uh, I mean, how long did he go to the States for at this time? Like two weeks. <laughs> and do you know where he went? Butte, Montana. And is Butte, Montana uh, a place famous for its brewing? No, 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 it's it's like tiny. I, I guess he was in the States and he did some... Re- I guess he always... He had al- already had the idea of... Oh yeah, farm in a brewery. In theory, it's a really nice picture. It's what it actually used to be, but nowadays isn't anymore. And people don't really give a fuck about where a brewery is, as long as the beer is shitty and sweet. That's uh, the idea of brewing in Belgium. Okay, so you're you're getting to something else. There, yeah, but yeah. I'm, let's I'm go back. To, let's go back to the origin story. Yeah. So, so what you have is he's coming back. The brewery will be delivered, I guess, to yeah. Belgium. Someone has to brew on it. Yeah, so we, we found a, a beer an, an engineer teaches how to brew. That's it. And then you started as Brauerei Hoften Dormal. Yes. And you're, what, 17 years of, years of age? Yeah, back then I was like 18 or and, so. And is, is your brother Dries kind of driving the kit at the start? Yeah, so he did like the first five years Something and now you're basically brewing on your own. Yeah, and Dries is working on the farm. Dries is working. The farm is expanding too. So we're we're really going hard in hops these days. Okay, so then you have this farmhouse brewery. How are you deciding what to brew? 
So we started like any Belgian brewery back then. Oh yeah, Belgian, what, what was a Belgian drink? It drinks a triple, an amber, a dark one. Then if you make those three, we, we will start producing. Obviously, after a year, we figured out like this is not the way for us. Like this is not. Was that a, a, a kind of a value decision or a commercial decision or, you know? Both, a bit of both. Like if, if we could make money only back then, only making one beer, you don't have the need to search for alternatives of go fully into, I'm, I'm doing air quotes, into innovative beers. But it's also super boring making those beers and being a, a traditional brewery in Belgium means you need to convince the market your beer is just like anyone else's beer so it's sweet and it's quite high in alcohol and it's not hoppy at all but you somehow need to convince them you make just the same beer as any other brewery but it's better and we don't we we don't have the money for that or the the wits we don't we're not clever enough in marketing to do that yeah but i think one of the things that you guys um have that others don't is a authenticity and an honesty yeah we're, we're actually as as real as it gets for a farmhouse brewery so i mean you talked a little bit about what was happening on the farm you have hops you have a hop field yeah we now have so we have one semi-big hop field for Magnum, just planted 10 rows of different uh, other hops. And then in June, we start up a hydrophonic hop farm in a, in a greenhouse. Okay, so what, what will that entail? Basically, the idea is to harvest whenever we want. So not only in September, but also in June or in August, or in, or in December. So we basically need to create a cultivating system we can grow, we can finish hops whenever we want. So we always have green hops. And are you, do you have contacts in like agronomic science that can help you? Are you confident enough in your own farming abilities? No, we, 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 we started working together with the KU Leuven. Okay, so that's the university in Leuven. Yeah, and then, yeah, of course, Joris Kambi is a big help Yeah, for anyone in Belgium who wants to do anything with hops, mm -hmm. I guess. So then some contacts in states. And, and are you growing barley as well? Yeah, so we do our own barley, we do our own wheat, spelt, rye, oats, that's it. And, I mean, how much of that are you able to then use in brewing? I mean, is it then for kind of commercial farming purposes or are you... No, it's, it's all for the brewery. Can you, can you get that malted then? We malt, we do only one batch of malting, our barley, but we let it get it malted at Dingemans. Yeah. And that's their smallest batch, that's 30 tons. Mm -hmm. So once a year we get a shitload of malt in. Mm -hmm. We need to store it. And all the rest of, I, I like to use raw grains. Mm -hmm. So for the, the wheat and the For the, the wheat oats. and the oats and the spelt. I like the taste way better than, than it is malted. Mm -hmm. So we use a lot of raw grains in our beers. And is the, the, the kind of the, the vision to have everything on the farm that you're using for ingredients? 
Like, or do you not mind? The, the, the vision is we try to get as much as possible within reason. Yeah. But if we, we, if we would have the vision to only get our own, we could only make saisons. Yeah. So we buy, of course, we buy roasted malts, specialty malts, and hops we don't cultivate. Mm-hmm. What about your um, yeast? Yeah, so we have a, we have three home yeasts basically, and again you're working with some uh, I guess like yeast scientists who have helped you. Ah, uh, Delvo. Yeah, Delvo, yeah. who's a sort of a very famous kind yeah, of specialist awesome. in Belgium. Super nice guy. So he provided our base yeast, which is a saison yeast, like a little bit more of a of a lactic in it, fermented at high temperature. So it's like a mixed culture strain. It's not mixed. It's a clean culture. Yeah, but it gets the notion of a of a lactic acid in there if you ferment it high now in high in temperature. Okay. Then we got a derivative of that that's uh, modified to go to higher alcohols, so we can ferment that till yeah, 26 Plato. It's like the highest it can go. Then we harvested our own sour culture, like our mixed culture. Because you're also doing quite a bit of um, barrel aging stuff, but yeah. also like mixed fermentation in wood. Yeah. Um, and so how, how much wood do you have in stock, would you say? So we have six fooders now and in barrels, let's say it's all wine barrels, like 300-ish. Okay. And that is using the uh, barrel as a fermentation vessel or for what was in it beforehand? Uh, so we mostly do the first time what was in it beforehand. So we put a, a 12 percenter on it, do a small batch of that. And then after that, maybe we put a dark one on there, depending how good the plant one was. And then it's all to the souring side. So, I mean, you have these um, acidic beers, you have some experimentation. You also have clean beers. Um, how would you describe like what you're doing? It, would you say you're experimental? Would you say you're... We just do it all. We also, we still make the blondes. So you have a, you have a, a kind of more classic blonde? We have a classic blonde and a classic amber. But, and you have a beer that you made from Whitloaf? Yeah, chicory roots. So that's a, a vegetable that yeah. is kind of very common in Belgium. Yeah. Which has a bitterness to it. Yep. Like the, the we don't use the loaf, but the roots... Because yeah, using the loaf would, in my opinion, give a very green vegetable taste mm-hmm. to it, which is not pleasant at all. Also, it's it's a brew fault. Like if you put it in there, it's it's meant to be in there, but people won't accept it. What about using fruit? Our fruit is awesome. Uh, so what, what, are, what are you using and how are you using it? So we use the traditional ones. So you make a big batch of creek every year. So we're on a souring side. And then we do a semi-big batch of raspberry. So that's the two mainly traditional ones. And then we do small batches of any fruit we can either harvest or, or buy. So specialty Wise. Now we're mainly looking at foraging. Okay. So, and are you sort of macerating in wood, or are you getting it into stainless steel? Getting it into stainless steel because we first we always do 
Well, beers are, are sour beers, fruit beers are like three years old before we bottle. We still do a first maceration in wood, age it, sour it. Then we get it to stainless mainly because probably what Glenn also told you, getting fruit out of a barrel is not impossible. So yeah, it's uh, and it's a lot of cleaning work as well. It's a lot. It's it's certainly when you do like cherries or something. Good luck of getting every pit out of the barrel. Yeah, yeah. Um, so on the on the farm, you have um, you have your family, you have your brother, um, your sister has some kids as well, yep. and they're kind of quite. You, you always see them running about the beside the brewery and stuff. Yeah. So it is a kind of a close knit family unit, even though you probably sometimes have some tension. Oh yeah, we have a lot of tension. But yeah. from the outside, we look like a hippie commune <laughs> with, with the amount of kids living there. There's, and there's always visitors and guests and people. Yeah. And it's, it's a really welcoming place to go. Um, and that's also, I think, part of the authenticity of it. But you kind of had a, a, a problem, I think, a, a number of years ago when you had a fire at the, yeah. At the brewery. So, yeah, how did that happen? And what was it? what happened immediately afterwards? So so we we are a whole stock storage uh, fermentation vessels and uh, uh, bottling line burnt down so was it was it from the, the roof was yeah the roof roof caught fire and it collapsed down which was a not the best day ever at all but we tried to pick ourselves up and uh, three years after the fire we had a it's not as easy as it seems, like, oh, yeah, we're going to start again. And you have good confidence, but you work two years without a roof. It's extremely tiring for a, a human being to work in extremely shitty um, conditions. conditions. So you're, you're continuing to brew on the kit without a roof? Yeah. Like, the, the kit had a roof, but the fermentation vessels we moved, but we didn't have, like, a glycol anymore. Our bottling line was under a tarp, basically. We constantly had to move boxes around because we didn't have a roof. But it's extremely tiring and obviously quality-wise and sales-wise we went. We crashed down hard. Really? Yeah. We used to be... Now we're getting back there, but we used to be as big as we are now, but we basically... So the fire started and we, were, we went back seven years in time. Yeah. So that's, that's, now we're all true. Yeah. But you don't realize how hard it was until now, basically. And have you now got a roof back on and a new building? Now we got a, a new roof. We, we got a new uh, brewing kit. We sold the other one. And that all takes financial investment. Yeah. So was there kind of... Uh, yeah, was first of all, was there moral support from the brewing community that to kind of say we were on your side? Yeah, I think I think most of the brewers can either relate to us or, or like us because we we're not difficult people. I think like we don't really care what other people think or what they do. Like everybody has to be happy and. Everybody has to make a has to be able to make a living from a difficult profession as brewing, but like any disaster, like if it's the same when 
your uh, spouse dies. The first week, everybody's like, oh, yeah, and pick up. People have their own lives to live, of course. So, so it, actually, there comes a time when you're left on your own to deal yeah, with it on your own. you're pretty fast on your own. Like, and consumers forget the shit you've been through, and they're right to do so. Like, it's our fault we produced less... The, the, the quality of our beer was less good than we should have. But that said, the consumers forget right away in what conditions you brew or what. But it's in the past, so I'm, I'm not going to complain or nag yeah, about Yeah, but it, it, it's like the, the human sort of challenge of it is often forgotten. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's obviously great that you guys are coming you, out you of that You brewed with us when, when we didn't have any rover or anything. Yeah, that's right. Extremely difficult brewing. Yeah. It, no, it's a big challenge. And... I mean, I guess one of the things that kind of came out of that as well was the a festival which you guys organized, which yeah. was the Leuven Innovation Beer Festival, which is still around yeah, now. It's still going hard. And that's obviously, that's also a lot of work. But yeah. Tell me, t- how, how is the Leuven Innovation Beer Festival, which takes place in this um, old uh, brew house of Stella Artois um, in, a, in, a, in a really beautiful venue and has got some really interesting breweries. How, how did that sort of, idea start after the fire and why did you want to do it how did you set it up so that it would be different from other festivals so it's the, like like any brewery i think any brewery has the idea of oh yeah somehow we want to do a celebration of beer culture like in the in the forms of a festival or a music fest. so we always had like a faint idea of doing a festival and then the fire happened and then two days after we're still on like a high of we have to pick up and you know how it goes so we said fuck it we're doing a festival and then it all just happened naturally um, so you're just you're just asking some friends just asking friendly brewery we, we have the luck to as we're a genuine farmhouse brewery with no, everything we say is actually true like we, we don't to we don't we don't hide our faces behind marketing like actually a farm and so and and especially friendly brewers or colleague breweries they recognize that fact that we're genuine so we have a lot of friends in the brewing in the international brewing world we we know a lot of breweries and either smaller extremely big craft breweries they still relate to us because I think for a lot of breweries we are what they wanted to be but at least they are they are bigger than so getting the breweries wasn't that hard but then the big challenge was how to do it better than any other festival so we basically do, and we still do it, the, the main idea behind the festival is we want to do everything we hate on another festival. Okay. So which, which included? Which includes trying to sell your beer. I hate it, like working for tokens for those 60 cents you get for a beer. It's, it's not a very respective way to treat the brewers. So the attraction of the festival like you don't get music uh, artists paid for every 
oh yeah, there's a hundred people in the crowd. You get a hundred euro. That's not how it goes. Like, not to sound like a rock star because we aren't. <laughs> but so we, we pay for the beer, and we want to get like within the festival. We want to have like an open space for brewers. So it's not about pouring beer. We want to have brewers talk to each other, share ideas, and quite a lot of beers have started at our festival, which is a shame because none are mine. <laughs> so, but yeah, there, and you kind of have some pretty passionate volunteers who help pour the beer so that the brewers yeah. are afforded a freedom to kind of go and, are, and then the, the, the volunteers we, we pamper them too they get a ton of free beer after the festival they get free food they get and I think that it's really nice that uh, the, the brewers are also welcome to the farm before the yep. the, like the, the, famous, the, the famous uh, brewers brunch the famous brewers brunch I've yeah. never seen it <laughs> you're too, every you're year too busy. people come oh, the brunch was so awesome but I'm setting up the festival my brother is setting up the festival too, and every every year, like the brunch was amazing, guys. Oh, it was so hospitality and fun, and I'm like fuck, <laughs> working again every year. But that's just my brother and I. It's it's a myth. It's yeah. for, for my it brother exist. and I. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. I think. Yeah, and I mean, part of it as well is the venue, right? Yeah, and the venue helps a lot. So it's a small venue. It's only for those handful of beer geeks in Belgium. And we get them, which is nice. So, but it's small venue, but it makes it's conflicting. But it makes somehow it makes sense to do a an extremely too geeky craft beer festival in a venue of the Big Bad Wolf, basically. Like I, I personally don't think AB InBev is the Big Bad Wolf, but talk to me about tanks. Tanks, like uh, stainless steel tanks, or, or, or my unhealthy... Not, not uh, stainless steel tanks, talk to me about other tanks. Armor, like Panzers. I, 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 I'm, I'm a big... Uh, I'm fascinated by World War II armor. Is that an interest in the, the, the historical component, or is it an interest in the engineering of... Both. both. So I'm, I'm, I love history. Then the thing I can most relate to is World War II. Because I think it's very, it's, it's like the beginning of the age we live in today. Like everything changed. And I have the weird gift to, I have a very bad memory and I can't do like calculations in my head, but I can remember things of wars and I can remember the tonnage of a tank and what kind of engine used to be in it. And I, for some reason, I can remember that. And I think it's the most beautiful machinery in the world. A tank. It's, do you have a tattoo of a tank? I do. Where is it on your body? Uh, on, on my heart. On your heart? Yeah. It's... And when did you get that one? When? Oh, when, I, uh, when I was like 22 or something. Okay. But it's, it's technically, it's not a tank. Because... Looking like a tank doesn't mean it's a tank. That's basically a tank destroyer. Okay. It's a, an M18 Hellcat. And are there um, 
tanks on display in Belgium. At, uh, there's one in a roundabout somewhere in a Flemish town, I think. Yeah, the, there's one in, in Limburg. There's a... An, um, Think it's, I think it's an A3 Sherman, but I'm not sure. Like the, the short stubby uh, 75 howitzer gun. And then in Wallonia, there's quite a lot of tanks. And there's still a, 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 King, a King Tiger. There's a big one in Bastogne, I think. No, that's a small one. That's, that's uh, American armor. But near to Bastogne, in a town called... I always forget the name of it. La Glace. Like, it's the smallest town ever. And then there's... Yeah, basically the biggest tank ever made that actually was in fighting condition, stands in the town. It's almost bigger than the church. Okay. okay. It looks like it's yeah. not, it's yeah. actually, but it's, it's a giant tank. It's a tiger too. So is the, is the dream to own a tank one day? Yeah. Who, who, everybody wants to own a tank. And it should be anyone's dream, I think. Ex, ex, um, excuse my ignorance, but how much does it cost a bad thing? Too much. Because I'm, I'm not an engineer or I'm not a mechanic or... So I, I'm, I'm never going to be able to afford a tank because what you should do is you buy a steel hull of a tank in extremely bad condition. It costs you like, depending on what tank, between 20 and 100,000 euros just for like a piece of steel. But you need to refurbish it and get the engine from somewhere else and work. It's not for me. And I'm never going to get the money to buy a, a working tank. So I, I gave up that dream like a year ago. You shouldn't give up your dreams, Jeff. I'm, I'm going I'm, to... Me and my girlfriend are trying to buy a house. It's costly enough. So. And, um, of course, you're getting married yeah. soon. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and that's going to be next year at some point. Yeah, next year, around this time, next year. So, but we're going to do a, I hate sitting marriage, like where you get like, oh yeah, and we do the friends of the parents come and then afterwards they go home and you go sit at your table and it's very sad. I just want to do a big party, like get a live band, brew a beer for it. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, you'll, you'll see. Um, let's talk more generally now about um, Belgian beer. Has there been a lot of change in Belgian beer in recent years, like from what you've seen? But you've been involved, what, since 2009? Yeah. So have you seen the market change? Yeah, yeah. I've seen it change drastically, I think, for the last two years. Two years, especially? Two years. And is that to do with, with the number of breweries, or is it to do with... I think it's with the recently for the last two years there's been a, an influx of new breweries. Like you, you, you have like the usual suspect like uh, uh, Ranke, which are all extremely good, or the uh, Zennebrouwerij, and they've been around since a couple of years before us, and they are basically the godfathers for me, like what New Belgiumese or Firestone Walker or Brooklyn in the States, they're like the godfathers of Belgian craft beer recently. Like you have the Tollen, of course, but they're too small to, to mean anything, I think. But then the last two, three years, you have an influx of a couple highly interesting, good quality brewers like 
not 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 to to stroke your back, but like Siphon and like and L'Hermitage and everybody knows them. They all shoot and you. So and then you have like the weird middle ground, I think, and they are still, in my opinion, backbone of Belgian craft brewing. It's like Dochter van de Korenaar, De Leite, Alvin, Strasse. I, I would count us in there, but we're in a very weird middle ground, I think. Because we don't have a... We have a very weird label. Basically, like, Hoofdendormaal is not a strong brand in the sense of it's craft beer and other people think... We are very weird in imaging, in coming out. But a lot of people are aware of it that I hate traditional Belgian beer. I think it's a disgrace for the beer market. Why? Like triples, blondes. It's all, as a brewer, too easy. And as a consumer, too sweet. Do you not see it as one part of a greater beer world? No. You think it's completely negative? I think it's completely... It's For me, as a consumer, at least, it's, there's no added value to anything. Like traditional Belgian beer. Maybe it's because in Belgium it's so obvious you should drink it. And whenever somebody says to me, you should drink that, I, I will drink something completely different. And also, if there was like two Belgian blondes... It's a difference than the, the 800 we have now, which are all the fucking same beers. <sighs> so would you, would you say that you see the word tradition as a negative thing? I don't believe in what Belgians call tradition. I think what Belgians call tradition is a, a 60-year-old beer. They pushed in people's faces... And now a certain organization of brewers made, the, made in marketing, oh, we are tradition and we are so old, but something from the 50s is not old. So what you're saying, it's like a falsified heritage? It's a falsified heritage. Not to say we don't have a heritage, but whatever Belgians brew now is not what they used to brew 100 years ago. And that would be tradition. 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And not something a brewery makes, sticks a label on it from an abbey and then put, put the, the, the starting date of the abbey on it. doesn't mean the beer is from... 1166. 1166. <laughs> to, say, to say, just say, say a date, a number, a, 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 a certain volume. <laughs> and... Um, I mean, on the on the kind of the, let's say, the more niche beer market with things like Lambic. Yeah. Um, there's obviously certain um, attention at the minute in terms of what those guys are doing has been kind of so inaccessible for people up until fairly recently. And now there are a lot of people within Belgium and outside of Belgium that are also brewing spontaneously fermented beer yeah. and, you know, working in ways which are similar to the ways that they produce Lambic. And yet the, there's a, a real resistance to the use of terms that are used in that's, Lambic. That, that makes sense. So if you are one of the, how many Lambic producers are there in Belgium? Eight? Nine? 
something like that. Something like that. And not counting the like two or three that... Planned? No, no, came the last two years. Yeah. Like you have a couple of them who are starting up. Of course, you are super protective of your brand. You can sell way too overpriced to people because they're... I I, I love Lambics and I love Gers and... I'm not, I'm not gonna shit on the quality of the beer because mostly I think it's amazingly good beer. But they're super protective because they are in the right position to ask more money than average for their product, more money than it's worth in Belgium at least. But with being so protective, I think they're destroying their own market because certain blenders who used to be super hyped and very good and they are like, I think they're all starting to overproduce and destroying their own markets without knowing it from inside. So do you, do you think... With getting it way too readily available. So you think you understand the protectiveness, but you think... I, I would be the same, but I think it's fucking bullshit. You think they're too defensive? They're, yeah, they're too defensive. But, but I can, I understand why they would do it. So because they have if you have uh, someone making spontaneously fermented beer in say let's pick a country the United States of America oh yeah it's, it's in my opinion it's all better but but is it is it Lambic yeah for me it is so Lambic is um, I am not a big believer in that uh, the bugs only live in the Zennevalet I'm not I'm, a, I'm very skeptical so you believe that you can have similar uh, lactobacillus and, and strains of Brettanomyces that you have in the Pajotanland yeah I tasted better spontaneous the best spontaneous fermented beers I drank are not Lambics where are they from? they're American and um, you're a brewery that has traditionally or sorry before um, sort of recent years exported a lot to the states right? so you kind of had a a relationship with uh, exporters and kind of knew some of the geographical points that you're selling your beer and that has come back a lot a lot yep because of the for growth for everyone because of the growth they, they, of, they're better because of the growth of breweries yeah and and we sell only sours anymore in the states why would they make why would they buy an IPA that's turning bad when it gets there or Belgian blonde which is easy to make for them too. Just let it taste of bananas. So I get it. I so when when when, when you when you say uh, to Belgian brewers or Belgian brewers that you know, um, the Americans are making better beer than the Belgians. What's the reaction? I think most people agree. I think so. Like. I'm, I'm too honest to be good and I believe in what I say but I think most Belgian brewers and we're talking the 20 craft brewers it's it's like it's not really friends because you're still competing against each other but everybody has respect for each other at least and I think everybody is aware of the fact we're not the beer country in the world. Like we're all good brewers and we all make good beer, but that doesn't mean an American makes bad beer or 
Not now the Belgian people are going to be mad. Even the Dutch have amazingly good beer. Yeah, that it's, it's, it's a global thing. And it's not just because you have Belgian blood. You somehow are a better brewer. That's, that's extremely short-sighted, I think. So casting your net forward a few years, where do you see things going, you know, say next five years, do you think? I think it's going to be extremely hostile. Anywhere in the world. Because of competition? Because of competition and overproduced. Like it's happening in the States, obviously, like breweries who overinvested have to shut down. And it's happening in Belgium too. Like the market is, it's not crashing. But like for a lot of American brew, for Belgian brewers, the American market is, is from quite a lot of sales to zero. And everybody has to look for new markets and nobody can sell in Belgium quite a lot. And I think it's going to be fairly hostile. Also, there's for some reason, I don't get how there's still breweries starting up. Like, why would you do it? Well, Belgium is a small country mm-hmm. with not a great population. So traditionally, there has been a lot of export among Belgium breweries. So, I mean, are you, you've obviously moved more away from America. Mm-hmm. Um, and what other countries are you, are you exporting to at the minute? Russia. We do quite a lot of to Italy. That's our three biggest countries for the moment. And Japan, a little bit, and then all over it just a little bit oh yeah we have a very good market in uh, Estonia okay no Latvia Latvia okay a, a, a pub who really likes us my spellets a year so a couple of them it's awesome like one guy <laughs> and what about what about um, for Jeff the brewer like what does Jeff want to do in the next few years in terms of from a a beer point of view from a commercial point of view from a creativity point of view apart from buy a tank what's what does Jeff what does Jeff want to do I think I think I'm evolving I I my my dream is to some day be a, a respective brewer she's good at his job and I think now I'm like most Belgian brewers I'm not a bad brewer am I exceptionally given don't believe in it either so I want to be I want to make that one beer that's a mark on the map like I know that it's it's mostly the beers that are hyped aren't don't live up to the hype but people are scared to say oh yeah that's maybe not mine. but I want to make like my Pliny the Elder or a beer like that but I'm, I'm, we'll see we will see we will see Last question. Do you love what you do? Yeah. Please let me brew all day and I'll be the happiest guy in the world. Let me bottle all day and I'll, I'll be very miserable. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. No uh, problem. Thanks for taking the time to speak to me and best of luck with everything. All right. Thanks, Brandon. Thank you. Thanks for listening, folks. If you want to hear more, why not subscribe to the podcast? And if you liked it, We'd love it if you left a review on iTunes. If there's someone you know you think would enjoy it, please do recommend it to them. And if you want to keep up with our stories, resources and projects on Belgian beer and Belgian chocolate, 
Sign up for our email updates on belgiansmack.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.